So as I'm reflecting here on the fact that it's Mother's Day, um, I can't help but think back to the early memories that I have of my mom. My mom's been gone for a long time now, and, uh, and I miss her. And there's some times that I just kind of wonder, like, what would our life be like if she was still around? I'm sure she'd be just so happy to, to be involved in the lives of her grandbabies. And, you know, I bet you she probably would have moved out here to Maui with us as well. But, um, but man, like, I miss her. And sometimes I go days and uh, weeks even without her even really popping into my mind because I'm just going through life. But sometimes it just hits, and it hits, you know, like a flood. Um, I miss my mom. But I think back to when I was very little, and, uh, you know, when I was born, my mom and my dad, they just figured that they should get married because that's what you do. And then my dad really liked using drugs, and my mom wanted to have a clean environment. And so my dad and my mom decided to separate. My mom moved into an apartment that cost a whole lot more money, but every penny went to the cleaner apartment. And my, my dad, he wanted to be able to use his money for his drugs, so he kind of, kind of went off on the deep end at that point. Was pretty much out of our life. Um, but my mom worked so hard to try to provide at least a living for herself and then wanted so desperately to be able to provide for me. Um, and my grandparents, they kind of filled in all of the gaps. My granny and my granda, they were like a second like mom and dad for me. Um, in fact, like my granda is pretty much like my dad. But they, they really they kicked in. They were there and uh, loved them so deeply. But with my mom, like I remember her being so poor working so hard just to make ends meet that she would just regularly eat frozen broccoli because that's all she could afford. And with that frozen broccoli, I remember her one time saving up all of her change and being so excited when she took me to the grocery store that she bought me a bag of Skittles. And that bag of Skittles, though it might just seem like, big deal, bag of Skittles, for her it was a big deal. And that she was able to afford that, and that she was able to buy that for me, and that I was so excited for that. And then I remember, as I was still a little guy, and I was riding in the little, the, the cakey seat on the wagon, and as we were driving, as she was pushing me back to the car, and I had my Skittles, and I went to open it, and I was overly excited, and I just exploded the bag, and the Skittles went over, all over the parking lot. And I remember my mom crying. Not because of the Skittles, but because of what it represented. It was like her one opportunity to like give me something special. And now that like she couldn't go back and get it again. And uh, it was an emotional thing. But I remember back to those times. She didn't have much, but she loved me. She loved me like crazy. And, uh, and I know that. And, um, but there's something special about those, those years, you know, of the difficulties of when you're young and, you know, you, here you have a, a little one on the way and you don't know what you're going to do. You don't know how you're going to be a parent. You don't know how you're going to be a mom. And uh, there's something about that scraping by and making do with so little that actually on this day, it kind of makes me think of a different mother. And this was a mother who had to leave her town and travel a really long journey while she was in the later part of her pregnancy. A mother who, along with her husband, they likely received all of their, the fair share of awkward looks and all the unspoken opinions. 
A mother who, when she was about to give birth, she sought for shelter. And when there was no place found, um, she had to stay outside in a place where animals were kept. A mother who, in that place of poverty and of lack, when she went into labor, there was no doctor, there was no sanitation. And as Mary grunted and pushed, at that moment, heaven was introduced to earth And Joseph was right there to receive their their firstborn son. And then Mary wrapped her son in cloth. And with no crib nearby, she laid him in a manger. And it's a funny word, that that word manger. Our English word is actually from a French word. And that French word means to eat. It was an eating place. It was a feeding trough. And that's all she had. And that's where she laid him. Now, I remember the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son who asks his father for his inheritance early. Because he wants to go and live his way. And so when he receives his father's money, he goes and blows it all. And do you remember where he is when he finally comes to his senses? When he's at his absolute lowest point, where he was at when he finally hit rock bottom and when he came to his senses was he was with the animals. He was wishing that he could eat with the animals, eat what the animals ate, eat with them there in their manger. And of course, that parable, it spoke of that prodigal son and his spiritual awakening. We all know what it's like to be hungry. Some of you are hungry now. But <laughs> now that you mention it, no, but, but you know how hunger can drive you. You know how hunger can lead you to change your schedule. It can lead you to, to change what your plans were in order to just get a quick bite to eat even. It was hunger that brought Naomi back to Bethlehem with Ruth. Uh, As it says there in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. And like I said, our physical hunger, it is a strong motivator. But it's also a powerful illustration of that deep down hunger of your soul. Because across the board, people have that sense within them that something is missing in their life. Something that physical things, no matter how much they try, those physical things simply cannot satisfy. But the good news is that God loves people. That he himself wants to meet that need, that deepest of needs. And sadly, there are some who will never know that sort of satisfaction. They know enough to know that they need something desperately, that there is something out of whack in their soul. And in that realm of the suke, they know that like, man, it's broken and it needs to be fixed. But instead of finding the Lord, Often they'll go from one experience to another, hoping that something, anything, will end the hunger and fill 
that need that they feel so deeply in their soul. No, no matter how hard they try, they never seem to find that true satisfaction. But God promises in Psalm 107, verse 9, that he satisfies the longing soul, that he fills the hungry soul with goodness. Notice the longing is in the realm of the soul, that the hunger is in the realm of the soul. And then in Psalm 63, verse 5, my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. And I love that, the way that that's worded, because you know there's times when you are, you are hungry, and a cucumber is not just, it's just not going to hit the spot. You'll eat that cucumber, and you'll be like, okay. Well, okay, how about a carrot? All right, and again, it's still not just going to hit the spot, but there's something about marrow and fatness that you're like, oh, that's what I needed. And I love that because there's just something about the longing that's in your soul that, you know, like the spiritual cucumbers and leeks and onions are just never going to do it. But the Lord will satisfy with the soul, with that marrow and that fatness. Here we are in John chapter 6, and it's a chapter that's filled from the beginning to end with the subject of food. Both physical, which it starts out with, and then it comes into its, you know, main emphasis, that issue of spiritual food. It began by telling us about the coolest picnic in history, where there were... Over 5,000 men, not counting their women and children, that were all gathered there together out in the countryside with Jesus. They had gone, it, it was getting late. They were far away from their homes and they were hungry. Many of the people, you know, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, Okay, you guys, give them something to eat. They got to feel the pressure cooker of the situation. And in that moment, they're desperate. He turns to Philip, Philip, buy them something to eat. And Philip's like, hey, like, you know, uh, we don't have that kind of money. Besides, there's no stores that can supply that. But remember, it told, the, the scripture told us that Jesus knew what he was going to do. Many of the people who were there that day, they saw this miracle. They saw how the miracle of multiplication was in the hands of Christ, how he could take that which was little and he could bless it in such a way where little became enough. In fact, little became more than enough because not only were these 5,000 men and their women and their children all fed, but the disciples went out, each of them, they started this day empty and they went out with a bas each with a basket and they gathered 12 basketfuls of the fragments of the bread that remained. And because of this miracle, so many were ready right then and there to grab Jesus and make them or make him their earthly king. They believed, man, if you could meet our hunger like this, then you could meet all of our material needs and you could satisfy all of our earthly desires. And so, I mean, honestly, like we, we sit here in our nation, we know what our national debt is. Well, some do. I mean, I think right now it's over like 31 trillion. I think that 
it is 130% over what our, um, our gross domestic product is. So like you can't, like we, we don't even make enough money to pay the debt that we have. And yet we want to keep borrowing. We are living in the negative. If someone could come along, anyone, and take our negative situation and bring us into the positive, bring us back to the days of Solomon where, where silver became as common as the stones, like that's not inflation. That's like going way back, right? Because silver is hard money. Even today, like a silver dime, used to, gas used to be 10 cents a gallon. You could take that silver dime and still with that silver dime, you could, you know. Uh, the meltdown value of seven silver dollars is 135 bucks. If the dollars were silver, seven dollars an hour is a great livable wage. If somebody could restore that value, like silver is common as stones, like Solomon did, wow. But you know what? Jesus didn't come to be our political messiah. He didn't come to make you wealthy and, 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 and bring everything back to order like that. He came to solve a deeper need, a more immediate, a need that is so much more important. It's not just a temporary need, it's an eternal need. And so, when they wanted to make him king that day on the basis of, you can make us financially prosperous and satisfy every one of our earthly desires, uh, he wasn't having it. He sent his disciples away and he went up into the hill, departing from them. Later that night, uh, as the disciples are out in the boat, on their way to the other side of the lake, he went as he's up in the mountains praying for them. And then in the middle of the night, he came walking to them on the water. And as he joined them in the boat, immediately they were on the other side of the, the lake in Capernaum. And all of those people that had been searching hard for Jesus, they were seeking him, but they were seeking him for all the wrong reasons. And we find there in John 6, verse 25 and 26, and when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They sought him because they wanted food. They wanted physical bread that would satisfy them for just a little while. The reason he came was to offer us living bread that satisfies forever. Remember, he says, don't labor for the bread that perishes, but for that bread which, you know, that endures to everlasting life, which I will give. But do you sense the hunger within your soul? Maybe you've never given much thought about it. It's just something that you deal with. And you wonder, like, why, man, why is existence so broken? Why is there such an emptiness? Maybe you've never given much thought about God. Just trying to fill the emptiness inside of you with the things of this world. And that's only left you more and more dissatisfied deep within. If that's what's going on in your heart this morning, this passage is for you. A passage that was written to lead us from being spiritually hungry people to finding that ultimate satisfaction in the living God.
And so with that, we look at verse 26 down to verse 29. He says, Jesus answered and said, or answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. One of the more interesting archaeological findings that they make from time to time there in Israel is what are called bula or buloi. Now what bula or buloi are is, well, if back in those days someone wanted to send a special message, they would have to stamp that special message with their own special seal. And it was the way for other people to know that that message has truly come from the one who it says it's from. It would have that special seal, the Bula stamp. And they found some really fascinating Bula. They found the, the special stamps of people that are actually listed in the Bible. And it's exciting. And when the, the Bula, what they'd find is they'd find the person's name, and then they would also list who their father was as sort of a further identification. Like, this is who this person is, and this is who their father is. And that way, you would know. Because, you know, what if somebody wanted to pretend that they were someone else in order to take advantage? Like, that would never happen, right? Like when all of a sudden you get that text message that says, hi, we are the IRS and you owe extra money on your taxes. So simply go down to Walmart and get some prepaid visa cards and send us the numbers. Right away, you know that that's not the IRS. Well, you should know. Okay. But yet they're pretending so that they can take advantage of you. In fact, one of the, my rules of thumb, whenever I get an email from anybody, if it's anything that has to do with anything financial and they provide a link in the email, I don't follow the link because that could come from anybody. The letters that, you're, that you see on the, that says what the link is don't necessarily correspond to what you're clicking on. I actually, one of my friends, he was like a computer hacker guy and we were playing a joke on one of my other friends that we used to teach at the Bible college with. And so what he did is he went into the guy's computer and he programmed the computer so that if he would type in a certain web address, it would redirect to a different um, site that my friend built. So my friend built this faulty, like a fake site that looked like another site and had it set up where when my friend types this into his browser, it would go to the fake site and then he made it to where my friend was like the front page of this story and how he's in all kinds of trouble within Christianity, within the church in Southern California, because Bible college students were saying this stuff about him. And it made it look like it was this whole scandal. And so my friend gets done teaching and, and our buddies, Jimmy and Sam, they're like, Jeff, did you see the news? And he's like, no, man, it's on this website. It was this guy who was all about finding all the scandals within Christianity at the time. And he's like, it's on this website called The Phoenix Preacher. You need to look it up. 
And so my friend's like, what? He's like, yeah. And so he types it in and hits enter and then bling. And it's the fake site that looks like the Phoenix Preacher. And it has my buddy's picture on it. And it's talking about like his reckless method of counseling. And he's just like, what? This is so hot. Who do I call? And he's like, I'm going to call Pastor Chuck Smith. And I'm like, no. He, he was about to make it so much more worse, you know. So I know that like you can do funny things. If you know how, I bet you David can have all kinds, do all kinds of powerful things with his computer skills. But to, for me, like, if somebody sends me an email and there's a link in it, I'll just go out and I will, I will go through like, like the search engine and I will find and then I'll go to that link because I know that even emails can be pretending to be from somebody when they're not. Back in those days. The way that you would have the confirmation of who it was from is it would have their bula stamp on it. It would be their seal. And that way you knew that the message that you were receiving was actually from the one who sent it. And here Jesus says, the father has set his seal on the son. That Jesus is God's message and the authenticity of the fact that he has actually come from the father Through prophecy, God had absolutely pinpointed that Jesus is the Messiah. Right down from like the very first prophecy in the Bible of Genesis 3.15, speaking of the virgin birth, but from the lineage that he would be born, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, of the stock of Jesse, of the, the family of David, an heir to the royal throne, an heir to the royal throne. And yet, in the book of Jeremiah, we find that that royal lineage had been cursed. And God even said, no one of your descendants will ever sit on that throne. And so you think, oh man, God's promises and now it's busted, it's broken, it can't happen. But we read in the New Testament, there's two genealogies of Jesus. One in the book of Matthew, And one in the book of Luke. And in the book of Matthew, we find the genealogy of Jesus that would make him the heir to the royal throne through a cursed line through by adoption through Joseph. And then when you get in the book of Luke, you find a royal line that comes through Abraham, through David. And then before the line gets cursed, another descendant of David, Aaron. And then that line comes through, which is Mary's line. So, born of Mary, of the line of David, adopted by Joseph into the royal line, no longer a descendant of that cursed royal line, but a rightful heir to the throne. And that was just a dilemma that would pinpoint exactly who Jesus would be. I mean, there's prophecies all over. But they didn't care much about that. They just wanted a free lunch. My watch is like, here's what I found. Here's where you can get free lunch. They're like, yeah, 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 Bible prophecy, whatever, whatever. Give me free lunch. The Father has set his seal on him. Then the miracles that Jesus did, they were prophetic as well. Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. 
And yet, all around them, everywhere Jesus went, he was proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord, and he was performing these miracles that no one else could do, that no one else had ever done. They didn't care much about that. They just wanted free lunch. They didn't believe in him the way they should. They just wanted to be fed. And he was the one who could fill their bellies. And so when they ask him, well, then what shall we do that we can work the works of God? He answers them in terms of faith. They asked him about works. And he answered in verse 29, this is the work. Works, work. What should we do? He answers in terms of faith. Jesus said a very similar thing to Martha. In Luke, not that one, that one. Luke 10, 41 and 42. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. You see, there's Martha with all of her many things, and there's Mary with her one thing. Now, it's not to say, don't be like Martha. Because, I mean, if there weren't people like Martha, the work would never get done, right? It's really nice for Christians to just be like, oh, there's so much work to be done. Let me just sit here and let other people do the job. And, you know, I think it would be, like, good to be a good blend between Mary and Martha, right? Busy and believing, right? <laughs> I get that's a good place to be. But the, the highlight of what Jesus is pointing out here isn't so much that she's, like, that Martha's doing stuff. It's that Mary, in her heart, she knows that her greatest need is Jesus. That that's the thing that was needful. Jesus. And so Martha is doing things. Mary is doing that one thing. And that is making sure that she is receiving from the one that can satisfy the longing of her soul. It's singular. Our salvation, our spiritual life, our well-being, our rest, it's all found in him. Colossians 2, verse 9 and 10 says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and powers. The fullness of the Godhead, and you are complete in him. So often we're just like them, like God is drawing our attention home to the very one who wants to give us rest, and yet we refuse he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29, come to me all you who are laboring, who labor and are heavy laden. Now look at that. There is sort of a, um, there, there is a condition to this, right? It, this is for a particular group of people, but it's not for Jews and it's not for like men or it's not for the wealthy. What is the people group in there? Those who labor and have heavy burdens, so I can just say, amen, that one's for me. And I hope that today you could be like, yeah, I, I, I think that's me. Those who labor and have heavy are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your, there it is, your soul. Your soul. God is drawing our attention to our need for him. His peace. And yet so often, we refuse. He tells us in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So there's the one hand, anxiety or come to him in prayer. And we're like, I can't come to you in prayer, Lord. I'm freaking out right now. Well, that's the point. That's when you should be coming to the Lord in prayer. Well, well, wait, I'll come to him once I get it figured out. No, he's not saying wait till you get it figured out and then come to me. He says, come to me and I'll help you figure it out. Well, but I have this anxiety. Leave it at the door and come to him. We just saw that he'll give you rest for your soul. It's interesting that like what Jesus is emphasizing here is a psychological need. And I can say that confidently because that word for soul that we see over here, you will find rest for your soul. That's the word suke, which is the root word of the word psychology. That what are you? Biblically, you have a body and you have a spirit, but biblically, you are a soul. A soul is what you are. Body and spirit is what you have, but soul is what you are. And so God wants to address you at the very center of who you are. That's where he wants to give you his rest. That's where he wants to calm your anxieties. As you learn to look to him, as you learn to draw near to him with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then beautifully, instead of anxiety, it's the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, and it guards your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He is drawing us to Jesus. But we're like, okay, but like, before you do, can you prove it? Like, hasn't he already done enough? But yet we still want more. Look at verse 30 and 31. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What works will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Look, these guys had been seeing so many signs. They'd been seeing signs of healing in the lives of others. People whose lives were so broken that seemed on the outward looking in so hopeless that it, was, it seemed like it was a lost cause. And yet Jesus showed up and he changed that guy. He changed that girl. He changed that household. He changed that family. He was doing things and others were watching it. And it was like, wow, that is a testimony. He was doing these works of healing. He was providing signs of provision. 
When people didn't have enough, they didn't have what they needed. And then right at the last moment when they needed it the most, he showed up in unexpected or even unexplainable ways. And yet that wasn't enough. All around them were people being changed and people being provided for. Even themselves, they were being provided for. But they still... They wanted more. What sign are you going to give me? And so they thought back to the story of Moses. Back to how God had miraculously provided food for the people of Israel when they wandered through the desert. And they challenged Jesus. What sign will you perform that we may see it and believe? Like our fathers ate this manna in the wilderness as if when when the fathers received the manna in the wilderness that everything was like great for them. You see, I remember back to the story. Like, I know what happened. They were hungry in the wilderness and God provided. And no sooner did God provide that they were already complaining about it and wanting something else. They're thinking, look, this will seal the deal. Give us the bread from heaven like like Moses did. Bring the manna back. And that'll be it. We'll be like, good. Manna's back. Everything's great. No, when they had the manna... It wasn't long to where they're like, no, we don't want manna no more. We want quail. We don't want manna no more. You know what we want? We want to go back to Egypt so we can have the leeks and the onions. They wanted more. They wanted different. They wanted something else. The manna didn't fix all their needs. They still were dying in the desert. That's why they ended up in that place and dying in that place called Kibroth Ata'avah, which meant the graves of lust. Because even though their, their things were being provided for, they still had these wandering hearts. But they're like, hey, if you just give us the manna back, then we'll believe it. The manna, this unexplicable bread from heaven, I mean, I guess you would call it bread. It was the size of a, it looked like a coriander seed, a cilantro seed. It's these little tiny pellets. You wake up in the morning, you find your food on your doorstep. Oh, there we go. You go out and you gather your meal. People that gathered a lot, they only they had just enough. People that gathered a little, they also had just enough. The people that gathered so much that they tried to have enough for the very next day, When it would save for the next day, it would become worms. And the only day that it would be enough to gather and then it would last the next day would be on Thursday Thursday night, Friday, right there. And then on Sabbath, it would would stay. They said it kind of tasted like honey. They didn't know what to call it. So they called it, what do we call this? Because that's what manna means. Manna means what is it? Right? So Bruce and Robin, they introduced Hannah and I to a little ice cream treat called It's It. And then there's a candy bar called Whatchamacallit. But manna is what is this? That's what it means. But the manna never solved their problems. It says there in Psalm 78, verse 24, he rained down manna on them to eat, or had rained, sorry, had rained down manna on them to eat and given them of the bread of heaven. 
And so it was as if they were saying, well, how about that, Jesus? You already fed the multitude of people with few loaves and a few fish. Well, why don't you just send manna down from heaven to us like Moses did for the people in the wilderness? If you do that, then we'll believe that you're the son of man. Now, their track record in asking for signs wasn't very good. He could have easily done what they were asking, and they probably still wouldn't have believed. The request was made before. Matthew 16, 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, testing him, and asked what he would show them, uh, that he would show them a sign from heaven. Mark 8, 11 and 12. Then the Pharisees came and began to came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. But I love how Jesus responds here to them saying, okay, like, yeah, the miracle of the water into wine, that was cool, but not enough. The miracle of all of the people that are broken lives being healed, cool, but not enough. The blind people having sight, cool, but not enough. That lady that was folded in half, couldn't walk, and you said it right, cool, but not enough. The dude with the withered hand, yep, nope. The guy that couldn't walk and his buddies let him down through the roof, awesome, but nope. All this, you just fed 5,000 people plus women and children, nice, but nope. Oh, what do you want me to do? What can, what do you want me to do? Simple, just give us free lunch forever. What does he say in verse 32 to 33? And Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So you ask yourself, have you been seeking to fill the emptiness inside of you through other things, but not turning to Jesus Christ himself? Apart from Christ, there's no other way for you to experience that level of satisfaction deep in your soul. For he himself is the bread of life, the true bread from heaven. And so remember, remember back to Mary. Due to the circumstances she found herself in after bringing forth her firstborn, she laid her baby in that feeding trough. And you would think, man, I just wish I could do more for my kid. I mean, like, I wish he could have more. I wish I could, a, a better place, a safer place, a cleaner place, a more comfortable place, a warmer place, a place that didn't smell so bad, a place that didn't look so bad, a place that he deserved. And those are the kind of thoughts that are in every mother's heart. The, the longing and the desire for things to be more, to be better for the sake of their child. And the frustration and the sadness and the possibly feeling like, like she was missing something. But amazing to think that as she laid her baby in that feeding trough, that that feeding trough was part of God's plan part of God's purpose. From his very birth and all through his life, God had set his seal on him that he is the true bread from heaven. 
that he is the one to satisfy the hunger of the soul. And interestingly as well, remember where he was born? The town was called Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. So the very one who spoke the universe into existence, who reigns over the nations, who commands history, who created us in his own image, is now declaring that I'm the true bread from heaven. It's not a matter of do this or that. It's not a matter of this sign or that sign. It's a matter of coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus. Bread from heaven, as he says in verse 33 through 30. Yeah, I'll start in 33. 33 through 35. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Remember the call back in Matthew where he says, all you who are weary and heavy laden. What are you supposed to do? He says, come to me. Come. And now here, that hunger within your soul, the restlessness in your soul, the, the, the fatigue of your soul, and now the hunger of your soul, and it's based on that call, come. In the last chapter of the book of Revelation, you see the spirit and the bride say, come, and let he who is a thirst come. Let them come freely and drink of the water of life. The invitation has going out into all the world. Come. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. You must come. You must believe. You must believe not only who he is, but who he wants to be for you. <laughs> 